So I'm glad to be up here today. This is uh, the third time I'll be preaching this message. The, the first service was a little rough, but I'm glad to be here. I'm glad you're here for the third service. It's hopefully going to be the best one. But when Randy asked me to get this, uh, this sermon together for Matthew 10, 16 through 25, to be honest with you, for the first um, message that I'll be able to proclaim here and, at Meadowbrook, Matthew 10, 16 through 25 wouldn't have been at the top of the list of, of what I would have picked. Uh, but God's word is still good, and even in, even in the hard hard passages. So I'm I'm excited to be up here talking through this text. So we're going to be in Matthew 10:16 through 25. It's not going to be in your handout. Uh, we'll be up on the screen a little bit. But before we get there, I want to kind of walk us through the journey that we've been going on for the past couple weeks. We've been kind of looking at what it means to be a gospel multiplier. A couple couple weeks ago, if you remember back, we saw that the motive for being a gospel multiplier is Christ-centered compassion. Right? Jesus looked up and he had compassion on the lost and as the sheep of Israel, the lost sheep of Israel who were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And it's that compassion that motivates us into the mission field, into the mission fields of our, our careers, our jobs, our, our families, our neighborhoods. It's, it's that compassion that, that calls us to take the gospel to the lost. And last week, we looked at what that meant. We saw how Christ commissioned his 12 to go out to the lost sheep of Israel and what he kind of instructed them to do. And we're kind of liking that to what he instructed us to do through his great commission. And today, we're going to look at what it means to be, what the reality of being a gospel multiplier is. So we saw that the motive and we saw what it looked like. Now today, we want to talk about the reality of being a gospel multiplier. And the reality of being a gospel multiplier is persecution and opposition from the world. Persecution and opposition with the world. Look with me. We're going to look on the screen. It's going to be what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. It says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So I did a little Greek study on that word everyone or all. And in the Greek, it means everyone and all. It doesn't change. It means everyone and all. Vine's Dictionary actually says it means radically all. And what he says is, is everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And what it looks like to live a godly life in Christ Jesus means that you pursue holiness, you pursue, you obey God's commands, you obey Jesus' commands, and you also make disciples. You engage the world, engage your lost friends with the gospel. So, what I want us to think and just have a moment of just reflection. If we're not receiving opposition, if we can't think back to a time that we received opposition from the world, or we haven't experienced opposition recently, either one or both of these things are true. The first is this. If we're not receiving opposition from the world, then we're not actually doing anything to advance God's kingdom. We're not actually engaging lost people with the gospel. Because if you would look at the gospel presentation we walked through last week, this is on our website. By the way, you can click on it. It's one of the first pictures you can see, and you can practice this at home. But we talk about how God's design, how we have left God's design, and now we're living in brokenness. Typically, people don't like hearing that they're, that they're broken, and the way that they're doing things are, is not working. They definitely don't like to hear that they can't fix it themselves. And we say, and we believe, and the Bible teaches that the only way to fix our brokenness is to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And people love Christian compassion. They love Christian unity. They love generosity. They love the things that, that get worked out in our Christian faith. They love the service, and they try to replicate it in the world. What they hate is they hate Jesus Christ. They hate that we say that he is the only way that we can have life. 
that the only way that we can have eternal life, that we can have a relationship with God. They hate Jesus Christ, and that's what they reject. So when we say that you need to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they say, I don't want to do that. I'd rather follow some other religion. I'd rather do it myself. So when we do that, when we stand there and we proclaim this gospel, people hate that. They choose to reject it. And then the second thing is, so if, if we're not receiving opposition, maybe we're just not engaging lost people. And that happens because as you, as you become a Christian, the longer you've been a Christian, the more your friends start to look like Christians. You just begin to make more Christian friends. So to engage lost people, we have to make an intentional and purposeful decision to engage them, or it just won't happen. But the second thing is, is if we're not, if we're not receiving opposition from the world, it probably could be because we're actually part of the world. We've actually never repented and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we don't know him. And we're not sharing our faith with others because we have nothing to share. So if we're not, if we're not receiving opposition, probably for most of us is in here, is, and like me, is we, we're just not as intentional about engaging the lost as we should be. But for some of us in this room, it's because we, we actually don't know Jesus. We, don't, we haven't repented and believed in the gospel. He hasn't transformed our lives. So as we read this text, we need to be, our hearts need to be open to it. Now, to be fair, persecution looks a lot differently today than it did with Peter and John and Paul, and it looks differently in our culture than it does in maybe a country like Syria or North Korea. Like, I understand that persecution is different, and, and it's not, you know, I want to just kind of think through, is because the enemy wants us to go, well, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to persecution. That doesn't happen in Gadsden, Alabama. That doesn't happen. Well, it does. We saw Paul said it's everyone who wants to live a godly life. And Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not everyone who lives in closed countries, not everyone who lives in a Middle Eastern country or uh, a hostile country, it's everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. So I want to walk through four scenarios that are just four of many of what persecution could look like in our lives today. First is this. As a dad, you've made a decision to raise a godly family. Part of what that looks like is you're going to be involved in church. The Bible commands for us to, to gather together, not to neglect the habit of gathering together as as is the habit of some. He commands us to be in relationship with one another, and that happened on Sunday morning. Well, the Sunday morning church gathering conflicts with just about any travel ball schedule, regardless of what sport it is. So, the desire to live out what God has called us to, you miss some tournaments, you miss some games, maybe some practice, because you want to be in church. You want your family to be in church. And then the next year comes around, and they ask your kid not to come back and play on the team. Because he, he wasn't committed like the other the team was. If he would stop going to church on the weekends and play in the tournament that weekend, yeah, he could be on the team. But you say, no, I want my family to be in church on Sunday. That's fine. He won't play with us. And then your kid misses out on opportunities to develop in the offseason, even be, build some relationships because you have made a decision for, to be in church. Second op, op, um, scenario where we could experience persecution is in the workplace. Maybe you've taken the call to be in a gospel multiplier seriously in the workplace. So you begin sharing your faith with your coworkers, your superiors. But you notice that every time a promotion comes up, you get passed over. So you talk to your boss about it, and he says, well, really, it's, it's, I think it's inappropriate that you're sharing your faith at work. So that's why you haven't been promoted. If you stop doing that, we'll, we'll get you promoted. You, you've had the experience, and you go... Like Peter and John, well, we can't, I can't help but talk about what Jesus has done in my life, even in the workplace. And you forfeit promotions, maybe even lose your job 
for the sake of the gospel. Forfeit bringing home thousands of dollars that you could be bringing home to your family that year. Next scenario is maybe you just want to hang out with the guys at the golf club or the hunting club, or maybe if you're a girl and you want to hang out with your girlfriends and do whatever it is that girls do when they hang out together. But you've made a decision to be intentional with how you talk. You don't want any unwholesome talk to come out of your mouth. You don't want gossip. You don't want impurity. You don't want any of that to come from your tongue. So you strive for holiness in that area. But you're having a conversation with your friends, and you notice that the conversation turns that way. And they invite you to join in on the conversation. Yet you refuse because you want to glorify God. And when they ask you why, you, you walk through, well, God has moved me from brokenness into to life, and I'm trying to recover and pursue God's design, which was, not, which was wholesome talk, not unwholesome talk. Now they reject you as a, a person, and now these friends that you've had for so long now lo- no longer want to be around you. He's just a, a holy roller. I want, I want to talk to him or her. And now they gossip about you. They make fun of you. And now, who used to be an insider, now you're an outsider, rejected by your friend. That's one. And then the last scenario I just want us to think about. Maybe you've done well as a parent. You've raised your kids up to be gospel multipliers. They're, they're believers. They're engaging and making disciples. And they love the Lord, and you're very proud. But they come to you, and they go, you know what, I'm experienced. I feel God's call in my life to be a missionary in Syria or North Korea, North Africa, a place that you know that if they go over there, they very well could, could die over there for the sake of the gospel. Your baby could die on the mission field. You could have grandkids that are being raised in a whole other hemisphere that you don't see every Christmas because they're, they're giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. Now, we all know that God's gospel is going to go to all the nations. And as, as someone who's about to be a dad in September, I have to ask myself, well, I pray that Joanna, my daughter, well, I pray that she will be that missionary that goes to the nations. Will I be okay if, if she comes to me and says, hey, I want to go to Syria, I'm, you know, my husband and I, we want to go to, to Syria to plant, plant churches. Is that something I'll be okay with? How do we respond in those situations? So there's just four scenarios of many that show this point. That's our first point. It says persecution is still the reality of being a gospel multiplier, regardless of our cultural context. So regardless of where we are in this world, persecution and opposition from the world is still the reality of being a gospel multiplier. So now with that in mind, and with in mind that we're in the middle of one of Jesus' sermons, he just commissioned the 12 to go to the lost house of Israel. Look with me at Matthew 10, verse 16 through 25. It's going to be on the screen, so just follow along with me. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. 
If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, which is just another word for Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Pray that your spirit would just show us how this can be applied into our life. Pray that you show this how it can be applied in my life. Father, I pray that you would speak through me. Your words would, would um, supernaturally be spoken through me. This would not be about me in any way. Lord, we love you. It's all these things in your name. Amen. So today I just want to share about three more things that, I've, that God has impressed in my heart about persecution. That first point was a freebie. So we got three points today. We want to look at what God has been teaching me about persecution. Like I said, as we study this, it's important that we go, even on the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at this sermon. It's well, maybe not the next five weeks, but five weeks total. We were looking at one sermon that Jesus did in one chapter. And we're going to be taking five weeks to go through it. This is all in a conversation he's having with his disciples. So just keep that in mind. He's just sent his disciples, uh, commissioned his disciples to go to the lost towns of Israel. And he's preparing them for when he will send them out to all the nations. But look at verse 16. He says, Behold, or look, listen here, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So the first point is, is that Jesus knowingly sends his people into danger. Jesus knowingly sends his people into danger. And even if you know that, and some of you may be like, I don't, that's not what I thought of when I, was, when I became a Christian. I didn't think of, that Jesus would send me into, to, as a sheep into wolves. Even, even if you do know that, when that practically works out in our life, when we practically experience the attacks from the wolves, it's not, it's not fun. It's not something that we're like, oh yeah, like persecution. Yeah. It's hard, and sometimes it's, it's difficult. And that's what we have to ask ourselves is, why, why, is God, why is God doing that? Why is Jesus doing that? Is he, is he sadistic? Is he like, does he enjoy seeing me suffer? The answer is no. <laughs> of course not. God loves us. He's a good father. We sang about that. So why does he do that? And Jesus does this because Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate for the lost. He's compassionate for the wolves. He wants them to come and repent and believe in the gospel. Paul was a wolf. He was ravaging the church. He desired that Paul would repent and believe in the gospel. And he's all-knowing. He knows that this world is not our home. He knows that we're not, this is, we're soldiers in a distant land. Like, this is not where we will end up. We're just passing through. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to idly pass through. We don't want to make this temporary home as comfortable as possible and as easy as possible for us to live. And we just, our faith is confined to Sundays and Wednesdays. God has called us to something higher than that. He, he didn't higher than that. Jesus lived out what it means to be a Christian. He is Christ. And he wasn't, and he wasn't confined to a day. He lived it out day in and day out. And he willfully chosen to engage, chose to engage in warfare against the enemy. He, he has gone before us, right? The God of angel armies has gone before us and has engaged the enemy on the cross and has proven to be victorious. So it's not even like we're fighting for victory because the victory is already ours. He is engaged in warfare and is still attacking strongholds like sex slavery or abortion all over the world. He's attacking strongholds and he is inviting us 
to, to speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves and to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. And that's a dangerous work. You can't go into a fight expecting not to get hit. That's what we're called to do. We're called to make disciples. And in, in a lost world, listen to what he says in Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Guys, we have a reward that is in front of us that is so much better than anything this world has to offer. We have a comfort that is set before us that is greater than any comfort that this world has to offer us. So we look to that. So whenever any kind of suffering comes our way or any kind of bad thing, this is for, for all bad things that happens in this life, we know that God is good because God has prepared something greater for us. So this, the, the, this, the muck of this world is not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed for us. So we persevere. And we engage with Christ in the dangerous task of making disciples. We're at war. Ephesians 6 says, we're at war, so we put on the armor of God. We're not at war against spiritual things, but the spiritual warfare that we engage with against the enemy. So we pray that God would go before us, and he has, and he is, so we engage with him. And then Jesus says, be smart and be pure. He says, be wise as serpents and be innocent as doves. So we use God's wisdom. We take God's word to heart. We learn it, we study it, we read it day in and day out so we can know what God's wisdom says. Not our wisdom. The world's wisdom says if you're a sheep in the middle of wolves, you need to get out of there. That's not what God's word says. He says be smart about it. Well, we don't seek out persecution because that would be stupid. But we seek the lost and we proclaim the gospel and in the midst of that, persecution comes. So we don't avoid situations where persecution is a possibility either. We put ourselves in the midst of wolves so that the light of the gospel can be shown. That's why he says... Be innocent as doves. So as you're making your plan, if you have a, a, a place that you want to engage, like your, work, your workplace, the ball fields, the gym, your schools, your campuses, whatever it is, think through it, have a plan, and then live out your faith in front of them and engage them humbly and innocently with the gospel. What that means is, is we're called to live holy lives and we're called to be humble with our gospel proclamation. Sometimes when we are sharing the gospel, and this is me, I forget that I was saved by grace. Like I had come to this knowledge on my own and I'm somehow better than you for it. That's not true. So we humbly engage as one who has received freely, so we give freely. That's what we talked about last week. And we live authentically before these people. This is, go back with me last week. This is what Randy said, this is our, our commission. We're supposed to go to all the world and make disciples and baptize and teach the commands of Jesus. And we're to proclaim the good news of victory, right? The gospel that Christ has came and lived and died and rose again and he's coming back again to those who know him and have repented and believed in the gospel. And this is what we're called to do. To love God and love people while living authentically before them in Christ for his glory. And that's where we mess up. So we be transparent about it. We repent. Because everyone outside of the church, you know what the biggest complaint about the church is? We're just a bunch of hypocrites. You know what? We are. If you said that about the church or this church, we are a bunch of hypocrites. I'm one right here. There's plenty of times where I say things that I wish, where I say things that I need to do that I don't do. I wish I shared the gospel more. 
I wish I made more disciples. I wish I was, you know, this is, this is to me today too. We do things that we wish we didn't. We're not perfect, but we know the one who is. And his righteousness is my righteousness. And when we live authentically and we're genuine about our screw-ups and our mess-ups and the gospel's power in the midst of those, the, the gospel shines. And note this, though. If we are actively living in sin, if we're choosing to live in sin, you know it, and you're just choosing not to repent of it, we will not be effective in gospel ministry. We must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We're supposed to be smart, use our minds, and, and, and be innocent. Pursue holiness. So you may, may not be convinced still that it's, it's a good thing that Jesus sends us into danger, but take comfort in this next point. Jesus is sovereign over persecution, and he provides for us in the midst of it. So if you look with me at verse um, 17 and 18, and then down to verse 23, he says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And then down in verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, I have not gone before, through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So what Jesus warns his disciples about here, I want us to take note, is what he warns about here takes place in the book of Acts. So walk with me on the journey through Acts. In Acts 4, after Peter has proclaimed the gospel at uh, um, Pentecost, he is walking into the temple a little bit later and sees a cripple there. So he heals him. And after the healing, everyone sees it, so he proclaims the gospel there. He proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, talking about how Jesus is alive. Well, the Sanhedrin hears this and they go, well, we just killed Jesus. Let's bring these guys in. Well, they recognize that they're just uncommon men, but they can tell that they've been with Jesus. And they say, hey, stop talking about Jesus. And they go, hey, we're not going to. So they pray for boldness. In Acts 4. And God answers that prayer. And then Acts 5, they bring them back in after they're preaching again. And like, hey, didn't we tell you to stop talking about Jesus? And they're like, hey, didn't we tell you that we weren't going to stop? And they continue to proclaim the gospel. And then we see in Acts 7, we got this guy named Stephen. He's been chosen to be a deacon. And he starts walking through the history of Israel. And after time and time and time again, they have rejected God and his messengers. Until the point where they rejected Jesus Christ, who is God himself. They rejected God in the flesh. And they get pretty mad. And there's a guy named Saul who oversees that Stephen is killed because of what he said. So then, he begins to ravage the church. And at that point, something interesting happened. The church flee to the next town. At that point, Judea and Samaria was where the gospel was. Now it was in the entire world. They begin to spread out to a place called Damascus, a Gentile city. Paul hears of the church there, so he goes to persecute them. On the way to Damascus, he, he meets Jesus, becomes a believer, and then continues. Now he starts proclaiming the gospel of victory that has happened in his life. Then down in Acts 24, he gets arrested in Jerusalem. And you know what he, who, he, who he appears before? Two governors and a king. That's what Jesus says. He says, you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Talks to two governors, Felix and Festus, and then King Agrippa. He appeals to Caesar. He gets up, goes up to Rome to a point where Philippians, he says, even believers in Caesar's own household greet you. So the point is here is that God uses persecution to expand his kingdom. 
So what we need to do is we need to stop giving Satan all the credit when it comes to persecution and the bad things that happen in our life. Because God uses those things to expand his kingdom. He is sovereign over the, the bad things. He is victorious over what Satan thinks he's using to get back at God and his church. Satan is never victorious. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of sickness, and all this bad stuff that happens, he is never victorious. God is working all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even persecution. Because God uses that to expand his kingdom. Now we've got to listen to this because we have to understand is that there are some people who will only come to faith after they've seen a believer endure persecution. Because they're a skeptic. And they want to see it lived out before them. So when opposition arises in our life, people are watching. And they're not watching to see us succeed. They want to see us fail. They want us to see us be just another hypocrite who caves and, and chooses a, a sport over, over, over Christ. They worship their kids instead of God. They, they, they worship money instead of, instead of sticking to what their convictions. They'd rather be silent about the gospel than, than lose a couple thousand dollars a year. That's what the world wants to see because they can go, you know what, that's just like me. They're no different than I am. But when we stand up for Christ and we, and we proclaim the gospel when it has personal cost to us, the world is watching. There's going to be two responses. They're going to hate you even more because of it, or they're going to repent and believe in the gospel because, you know what, this guy has something I don't have. This lady, she, there's something different about her. She's, she doesn't need affirmation from other people to feel secure. She doesn't, they, don't, they don't need money to feel accomplished. They got something better than what I have. And it's through that that the gospel, the light of the gospel, shines very brightly. So stay with me here. You may be like, look, it's still not me. But it is. That's each and every one of us. And not only is God sovereign over it, it's not like Jesus using us to expand his kingdom. It grows our faith as well. We saw last week how he's, everything he works is for the dependence of God. 2 Corinthians 1, you see uh, Paul talking about how when they were delivered over to death, and it was so that they could learn to depend on God even better. So he's sovereign over it. He expands his kingdom. It grows our faith, but also he provides for us in the midst of it. Look at verse 19 and 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in an hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That's a great promise. When opposition arises in our life, God says, my spirit is going to give you what to say. Now, if you're a life group teacher or a preacher, that's not a free pass to just go up there and wing it because God's going to give you what to say. It may sound like that's what I'm doing, but I promise you, it's not. <laughs> that's a promise that God has given to his, his people when they undergo persecution. He's like, hey, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you what to say. But not only that, look at what, he's, what, what goes on here. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. The opposition and the betrayal that he's talking about is to the basic core of our society, the family. And that happens today. In, in places like what we talked about Syria, someone comes to faith and their family disowns them, rejects them, delivers them up to be killed. Even today in our culture, there's... People at, at, at gatherings are like, I don't want to, you know, I don't remember what he was like when he was a kid. Now he thinks he's better than all of us. Thanksgiving and Christmas, and that's not true. 
But it happens. The gospel, when someone comes to faith, sometimes that causes a division, even within the family. He says, you're going to be hated by all for my name's sake. And he says, but those who endure, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. How are we to endure that? And we're going to get kind of deep here. It's called, it's a, there's a doctrine in Christian faith that's called the perseverance of the saints. And it's basically we endure because Christ provides the endurance that we need. This is what Grand Grudem defined it as. He says, all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere to the end have truly been born again. So what that means is, is if we are in Christ and we are truly in Christ, there is nothing that anyone can do, including yourself, to remove that salvation from you. God says if, if for those that who are his sheep, he has in his hand, nothing can, can let, break that grip. Nothing. But what that also means is, is if as you look at your life and the only evidence of your Christian faith is a decision you made 30 years ago, then you probably haven't been shown fruits of someone who has been truly born again. Because for the one who endures to the end will be saved. Has been saved. Because Christ keeps those that are his own. So what that means for some of us is, is that we need to repent and believe in the gospel. Because we recognize, I know what Christ says, what Christians are supposed to look like, and that they're supposed to bear this fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And like, really, if I was honest with myself, that is not me. Not even in the slightest. I can see that that hasn't been produced in my life. Or maybe those close to you can say, yeah, that's not, that's not you. And we need to go and be honest with ourselves and repent and believe in the gospel. That's where I was. And, and when I was in 10th grade, I was here at this church. Been in church my whole life. Involved in Bible studies, things like that. But I was faking it. I really was. I knew the words to say. I had the right answer. Made the decision to be baptized. But I didn't, I didn't know Christ. I haven't repented and believed in the gospel. I was willfully living in sin for years with no regard for God's word or, or his, his nature. And God graciously revealed to me that, hey, man, you're lost. You're faking it. And he, his, that call for my life was, hey, man, you need to repent and believe in the gospel. That may be for some of you in here. Maybe that was you and you realize that and you need to change the way you share your testimony. Maybe you say, well, I, was, I made the decision when I was five, but 30 years later, even though I hadn't been living for Christ at all, God got a hold of me, and I surrendered my life to him. And really, you just need to say, well, yeah, I was faking it for 30 years and didn't even know it. And I became a believer when I repented and believed the gospel at age 40 or 50 or 60 or even later. And you need to respond with baptism and proclaim to the world the transformation that God has done in your heart and in your life. Those are just a couple things that we need to do. And when we, we're, we're, when we deal with these texts, we need to just be honest with ourselves. And look at our lives and examine it and see where we need to repent. See, see what, where we're at with God. But regardless of where we are, as we look at verse 24 and 25, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And the last point is this. If we are really living like Christ, and if we are really being a gospel multiplier, persecution and opposition is guaranteed because that's what happened to Christ. There's this kind of myth that we think if we just 
were more like Christ, people would like us better. That's not true. People, Jesus was exactly like Christ, and they killed him. Now, granted, if we were more like Christ, those, who, those persons of peace will respond, or, you know, there's some benefit there. So I'm not saying we don't need to be like Christ, but just remember, Christ was exactly like Christ, and he was killed. The world hates Jesus, and he set the example for everything in the Christian life, and he suffered immensely. He was the good shepherd that laid his life down for his sheep. And before he was betrayed, when he's in the upper room with his disciples, he reminds them of this very text. He says, remember that word I said to you? He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And that's what's in store for us who desire to be like Christ and make him known. Opposition from the world. That's the reality of it. But we have a reward that is better. We have something that is better than what this world has to offer. Who cares if the world opposes us, if God is for us, right? Listen to what happened to him in Jesus in Matthew 26. It says, They began to spit in his face, in Jesus' face, and punch him and slap him. That's, what's in, that's what Jesus had in store for him. Because he loves us. He endured suffering and persecution at the hands of his own people. He, whom he came to save, but he was despised and rejected. The Bible calls him a man of sorrows. And he did that for us because he loved us. And it's love that caused us to suffer with him. Because Christ loved the world, he suffered for the world. So he wants his people who love the world to, to suffer with, with him, engage in the battle with him. John Piper says it this way, and I think it's better than anything I, way I could say it. He said, Jesus had love to suffer for me that I might have faith to suffer with him. If we have faith that Jesus is who he says he is and he's going to do what he says he's going to do, if we have faith that one day we will live in eternity with him in a million years, we're not going to remember what happened on this earth. We're not going to care. We may remember. That may be heretical, but we'll remember it. But it's not going to matter because Christ has worked in us, and we will be in our glorified state. And none of this thing that happens on this world will, will hold a light or anything to what we have to be revealed in eternity. So with that in mind, we must ask ourselves these questions. This is what I must ask myself. Is, do I really want to be like Christ? Do I really want to pursue holiness and pursue Christ-likeness? Do I really want to be a gospel multiplier? Do I really want to engage my lost friends with the gospel, even if it means I'll be rejected? Knowing the reality, is that something I want to? And if so, and that's true of my life, and I hope it's true of your life, that desire is there. We must ask ourselves, in, in application, is that true of my life today? Am I doing that today? Am I living like Christ today? Am I engaging the lost with the gospel today? And we've got to be honest with ourselves and go, man, maybe, maybe I'm not. Or we need to go, yeah, I think I am. I need to do it even more. And we need to, ha- we need to repent and, and follow Christ and make him known. So we're about to have a time of invitation. Kevin's going to come up here and sing. I want you to think back to the scenarios with me. Just think, how would I respond? Maybe you respond exactly like that. Maybe you wouldn't. I just want you to think, even if it's at your, just at your seat, if you feel God moving in your heart, just to commit your life 
to being pursuing holiness and being a gospel multiplier. Dads, maybe you want to gra- gather your family. Come up here and pray as a family or pray there at your seats. And commit your family to that end. Commit that you, we're going to be a family that looks like Christ and makes him known. Maybe you're in the congregation and you, and you know someone who's lost. Maybe it's a child or a parent or a sibling or a friend or a coworker, And it's just been eating away at you, weighing you down. It's just, it's just you've, you've shared the gospel with them. They haven't repented. We're going to have people up here who would love to pray with you. Pray for them. Maybe you realize that you've been telling your testimony wrong and you need to respond and, with believer's baptism. Maybe that's you. You have people who up, up here would love to talk to you about that. Or maybe you just had your eyes open to the fact that you were lost like I did eight years ago. You need to repent and believe in the gospel. The altar will be open. There will be people up here who'd be lo- who would love to talk with you more about that and pray. But I'm going to close us in prayer. Kevin will come up and lead us in that. Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done for us. Lord, I pray that we would respond with action and with truth. Lord,